When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Paradise by Dan the Witch Siren. This group out of Columbus is our feature Ohio music artist this week. So stick around to the end of the podcast. We'd love to tell you more about them, how to find their music, and we'll play that whole song for you. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent an award-winning 30-year career at the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, let's start with a little trivia test about seven American folk heroes, many of them revered in songs, books, even TV shows. I'm going to give you a name, and you say real or fiction. Now, you can give your answers out loud, but I'm going to wait to the end to tell you whether you're right or not so our listeners can play along and have time to decide for themselves. All right, I'm ready. Okay. Paul Bunyan, the lumberjack who cleared forests accompanied by his blue ox babe. Real or fiction? Oh, man. I'm going to say fiction on this one. Okay. Davy Crockett, the bear-killing frontiersman. That one's one's real, I think. Okay, how about John Henry? He was the steel-driving black railroad worker who helped open mountainsides for railroads till he died from exertion. Uh, No, I'm going to say that one's fiction. Okay, Uh, how about the Maid of the Mist? She was a Native American widow who survived a trip over Niagara Falls with her canoe. That one's real. I think that one's real. Okay. Picos Bill. He lost his parents while they were on their trek west. He grew up in the wild with animals, and he became a rancher known for his uncanny command of his livestock. Oh, man. I'm going to have to say that one's fiction. Okay. Uh, And how about Casey Jones, the engineer who tried so hard to stop his Cannonball Express from hitting another train that he died with one hand on the brake and one hand on the whistle? That that seems, yeah, that seems fiction, too. Okay. And here's the last one. Johnny Appleseed, the barefoot wanderer who walked all over the Midwest planting apple trees. Oh, that one's fiction, too. Come on. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Listen, everybody playing at home, pause this if you don't have your answers decided yet. Okay. Here we go. Paul Bunyan, the lumberjack, pure fiction. You get a point for that one, Steve. Right. Davy Crockett, the bear fighting frontiersman, very real, even became a senator and died at, remember where he died? Uh, the Alamo, right? The Alamo, yes, very good. John Henry, the steel driving railroad worker. Now, this is interesting because it was once believed he was fiction, but modern day historians have found someone in the records with his name, his job. Now they think it's true that he really was living. Oh, interesting. I think that makes me two for three now, right? Right. You're two for three. Okay, now, the Niagara Falls survivor known as Maid of the Mist, fiction. Ah. (laughs) Well, I didn't give away the ending earlier because it would have told you right away it was fiction. But the story went on to say that she married a god and the horseshoe falls was formed by the spine of a serpent. Okay, so two per. (laughs) All right. All right, Picos Bill, the rancher who was once an orphan raised by animals, that was fiction. That was actually a popular short story. All right, so three out of five now. Okay, Casey Jones, the brave engineer of the Cannonball Express, absolutely true. It happened in 1900, God rest his soul. I'm back to 500, three for six. Okay, Uh, I'm I'm afraid this one's not going to break your way because Johnny Appleseed, the nature-loving tree planner, absolutely true. Wow. I thought out of all of those, that would be the one that was the most fiction. Interesting. Well, I'm glad we're doing tonight's story on Johnny Appleseed for that very reason, because he truly deserves to be remembered. Johnny came to Ohio in the first decade of the 1800s, ahead of most pioneers with the express purpose of planting apple trees so the coming settlers would have sustainable food sources. He considered himself a missionary. In Ohio alone, Johnny spent more than a decade creating a thousand acres of apple orchards in what we know today is 18 different counties. And he was such a memorable character often wearing his campfire pot on top of his head, dressed in sackcloth, and usually completely barefoot. He was a legend in his lifetime. His humble contribution to the expansion of the American West was recognized in beautiful obituaries when he died in 1845. Listen to this one. William Tecumseh Sherman, who would go on to be the famous Union Civil War general. He met Johnny Appleseed when Sherman was just a boy growing up in Ohio. And after Johnny's death, Sherman said, Johnny Appleseed's name will never be forgotten in Ohio. His work has given a degree of prominence and stability to many a frontier village. As wealth increases and the century becomes more settled, we shall realize more and more the value of the work which he has done. We will keep his memory green, and future generations of boys and girls will love him as we who know him in the Ohio Valley have learned to love him. So, since Sherman promised, here's our little part to carry on the story of Johnny Appleseed as we sort out the mythological components and get to the real heart of the man. 
Before Johnny became an eccentric nomad, he was a typical kid growing up in New England. He was born September 26, 1774, as John Chapman to Nathaniel and Elizabeth Chapman in Leminster, Massachusetts. That was two years before we became a country. Johnny's dad was a farmer who became one of the Minutemen at Concord and later served under George Washington at Valley Forge. So you could say from the very beginning, Johnny's family had an interest in seeing this new country survive and thrive. Johnny had an older sister, Elizabeth, and a younger brother, Nathaniel. He lost his mom just a month after Nathaniel's birth, and his dad remarried and had 10 more children. So Johnny had plenty of siblings, several of whom would eventually head west as he did. Johnny's love of nature was evident as a boy. He loved mixing herbs and reading books about plants, animals, and the natural world. He taught himself how to care for injured animals, and he aggravated quite a few trappers by freeing their game and nursing their prey back to health. During this time, Johnny also apprenticed himself to a neighbor, Mr. Crawford, who owned extensive orchards. This is where Johnny first learned how to care for trees and their fruit. At the age of 20, he moved to Pittsburgh. The general there, in command at the Fort of Pittsburgh, owned a large farm with an apple orchard, and because of Johnny's experience with apple trees, he was hired to care for it. He soon made enough money to purchase his own land, build a log cabin, and plant his own orchard. At the same time, Johnny was working on the Monongahela River, building keel boats and flatboats for migrants who were headed west into the largely unexplored Ohio Valley. Watching that small but steady stream of humanity risking everything to expand America's western border, he started to feel this intense responsibility to help them. There were two ways he could do that. First, head west himself and provide sustenance by planting apple orchards. The second was to spread his faith. Johnny was a follower of an 18th century Swedish theologian named Emanuel Swedenborg, who believed God was the sum total of nature. The plants, the animals, the land, these things were the primary manifestation of the creator, and it was man's responsibility to care for them. As a matter of fact, Swedenborg's Church of the New Jerusalem, as it was called, would come to have one of the earliest accounts of John Chapman's work. Records from that church preserved in England describe Johnny as, quote, an extraordinary missionary in America. For Johnny's part, he came to see the apple as a divine gift to man. It was a long-lasting pantry item that could help a family survive hard times. It had diverse uses and could be used for everything from apple pie to applesauce to apple vinegar, which was so critical in preserving other foods. It could be turned into cider, very critical in a wilderness where a well or water source could dry up. Man could eat it 
and drink it and make it last through the winter. It was the perfect food. In preparation for his upcoming trip, Johnny collected apple seeds from the Western Pennsylvania cider mills. The mills would squeeze the apples for juice and throw away what was left. Johnny would take this mash, dump it into a tub of warm water, and sort out the seeds. Then he would dry them and put them into deerskin bags and leather sacks. His favorite apples were the Rambo and the Northern Spy. The Rambo was yellow-white and striped with red and known for its delicious flavor. The Northern Spy was an outstanding cooking apple. Now, after Johnny had his supply of seeds ready, he reportedly gave away his cabin, his orchard, and a cow to a Pittsburgh widow and her four children. Then he lashed a couple of canoes together, and in 1801, he loaded it with bags of seeds and some two-year-old saplings wrapped in wet moss and floated down the Ohio River to Marietta. There, he headed up the Muskingum River and its tributaries, including the Tuscaroras, the Licking, and the Wahonding Rivers. His earliest known nursery was nine miles south of Steubenville, across the Ohio River from Wellsburg, West Virginia. It was a logical starting point. The Harrison Land Law of 1800 had made Steubenville one of four Ohio land offices where a settler could buy land for a down payment as little as 50 cents. And so it was there Johnny established a nursery on the farm of Jess Thomas at the mouth of George's Run. You know, by the time Johnny was done with this, he would have nurseries planted in what today we know is the counties of Wayne, Ashland, Richland, Coshocton, Hancock, Logan, Butler, Harrison, Carroll, Mercer, Crawford, Morrow, Guernsey, Clark, Jefferson, Huron, Knox, and Defiance. At one time, he owned more than 1,200 acres of land, and because he went ahead of the settlers, he even had an impact on how Ohio was developed. There is evidence that villages actually sprung up because of their proximity to his thriving orchards. There are lots of stories about Johnny's impact on communities. For instance, in Marietta, they tell of how Commander Whipple of the U.S. Navy stationed in that town gave Johnny a small plot of land and asked him to plant a nursery. They even gave him prisoners to assist with the work. Johnny was there when an epidemic of fever came tearing through town, and he used his knowledge of herbs and natural remedies working with a local physician, Dr. True, to tirelessly care for the sick and save many lives before that epidemic had passed. By 1810, Johnny had settled in Ashland County and considered it his headquarters. He had a half-sister living nearby in Mansfield. A lot of folks who met Johnny wrote about him, preserving for all time some of the traits that have given us a detailed impression of the eccentric nomad. They described him as being between five foot seven and five foot nine, slim and wiry and straight as an arrow with blue eyes. He was always poorly dressed, 
wearing only cast-off clothing given to him by housewives where he visited, or pieces of fabric he would trade for a tree sapling. For a time, the settlers even chuckled, remembering how he used to wear a pair of leather trousers. It was a gift of a woman whose family operated a tannery near Mansfield, and they recalled it because they said they could hear Johnny coming before they could see him from the briars scratching at those leather pants. He always earned the meals that settlers would freely have given him. He would babysit or assist women in some of the chores like wood chopping or emptying wash tubs. He helped farmers with their work. One settler recalled, and here's a quote, Chapman would gather herbs used by mothers for children's ailments and exchange them for a meal or lodging. Catnip, whorehound, golden seal, ginseng, woodbittany, and the like. Now, settlers who wrote about him said he was always a welcome visitor, but he would rarely accept an invitation to sleep in their homes. He would insist on a space in the barn or the woodshed or simply take a spot under a tree. He would occasionally sleep inside taverns and hotels in the winter, but only in exchange for keeping the fire going through the evening. One thing that stunned most people who met him was the fact that in warm weather months, he almost always was barefoot. One report said his feet were so calloused as to resemble the hide of an elephant. Here's a quote. Sometimes he showed off a trifle by thrusting pins into his feet without causing a single bodily tremor. If they were cut or opened by a sore, Johnny would call upon the mistress of a nearby dwelling to borrow her red-hot iron and then would immediately sear the wound closed to her utmost horror. One story, and I don't know whether this is true or not, is that Johnny was walking barefoot along the Mohican River when he stepped on a rattlesnake. The snake tried three times to bite his foot but couldn't penetrate the skin. When he did wear something on his feet, it was often conversation-worthy. One settler wrote, His footgear generally consisted of old shoes, or a shoe and a boot, or now and then, only one foot covered. Now to Johnny's sense of humor, someone once asked why he only had one foot in a shoe, and he quipped that the barefoot was being chastised for a transgression. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. In some images of Johnny Appleseed, you might see some funny objects on his head. Accounts from his contemporaries say his headgear was indeed worthy of mention. Sometimes he wore simple old hats, but sometimes they would see him with a tin vessel on his head, the pot he used to cook his meals in. And sometimes he would wear the pot on his head and cover it with another hat that had a fold in it and inside those folds, books or religious tracts. 
He always traveled with books from Swedenborg and was ever ready to read from it to anyone who expressed a desire to hear about his faith. He called it News Fresh from Heaven. One entry made in a local church log in 1817 said this of Johnny. A man has appeared in the Western country who seems to be almost independent of corporal wants and sufferings. He goes barefooted, can sleep anywhere, in-house or out-of-house, and live upon the coarsest and most scanty fare. He has actually thawed ice with his bare feet. He procures what books he can of the new church, travels into the remote settlements, and lends them whenever he can find readers. Sometimes he divides a single book into two or three parts for more extensive distribution. From Johnny's established nurseries, he would sell his saplings for six cents. He would use some of the profits to print Swedenborg's works to distribute along the frontier, but other times his profits benefited animals. If he heard of a horse being mistreated or abused, he would purchase it and give it to another owner. Sometimes he'd use what money he had to pay for winter shelter and food for old or lame horses that were being turned out by their homesteaders. His love for the natural world was so passionate, it was said he was known to douse his campfire if he saw it was killing mosquitoes. To that, he reportedly said, God forbid that I should build a fire for my comfort, which should be the means of destroying any of his creatures. Johnny never married, but he would quip that God had two beautiful wives waiting for him in heaven. There are conflicting thoughts as to what the Native Americans thought of Johnny, especially in those early years before Ohio was even a state. The romantic myth of Johnny's tale says the tribes never bothered him and considered him a powerful medicine man and healer. But other more realistic accounts suggest Johnny and the local Indians regarded each other with suspicion. There's an account from the War of 1812 in which Johnny warned settlers in the Mansfield area that an Indian attack was coming. The witness to this wrote that Johnny said to them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to sound an alarm in the forest, for behold, the tribes of the heathen are round about your doors. In 1819, the country suffered a terrible financial depression, and in the years that followed, Johnny lost most of his holdings in Ohio. He stayed here till about 1830, then had a new destination in mind. At the age of 56, he filled a canoe with burlap sacks of apple seeds and put in at the Maumee River. A settler described his vessel as a hollow tree daubed with mud and moss and looking quite appropriate next to Johnny's rough garb, untidy appearance, and eccentric habits. He floated on the Maumee in Northwest Ohio to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he had another half-sister. Just as in Ohio, he made friends fast and traveled with the top citizens of the city. He planted nurseries on 214 acres near Fort Wayne. He was a restless man. He also planted orchards from Southern Michigan and into Eastern Iowa. But Fort Wayne was home now. 
in the winter of 1845, Johnny left the home where he lived with his sister and brother-in-law and hiked 22 miles through freezing rain to repair a fence around one of his orchards. It had been damaged by cows. He caught pneumonia. Back at that time, they called it the winter plague. Sick and weary, he made it to the home of an old friend, William Worth, on the St. Joseph River. There, on his deathbed, a friend wrote, Chapman was wearing a coarse coffee sack with a hole cut in the center through which he passed his head. He had on the waists of four pairs of pants. These were cut off at the forks, ripped up the sides, and the fronts were thrown away, saving the waistband attached to the hinder part. These hinder parts were buttoned around him, lapping like shingles so as to cover the lower part of the body. And over all of these were drawn a pair of what had been pantaloons. In this garb, he died as he had lived. Johnny passed away on March 18, 1845, and was buried in a $6 walnut casket. Remarkably, in spite of the primitive way he had lived his life, he had made it to the ripe old age of 70. It is said when news of his death reached Washington, D.C., Senator Sam Houston of Texas eulogized him, saying, This old man was one of the most useful citizens of the world in his humble way. He has made a greater contribution to our civilization than we realize. He has left a place that can never be filled. Farewell, dear old eccentric heart. Your labor has been a labor of love, and generations yet unborn will rise up and call you blessed. Johnny's final resting place is a bit of a mystery. There is a tombstone inside the wrought iron fence at Archer Park in Fort Wayne, Indiana, with his name and next to an apple tree. But in the 1930s, another place declared itself to be his grave. It was on a place at the time called Hiram Worth Farm, which later became the W.S. Roebuck Farm, and still later, Johnny Appleseed Park. Wherever his bones are, his spirit continues to cover a much larger footprint. From Massachusetts to Indiana and every state in between, there are monuments to him. His name is on schools, parks, bridges, even highways. Uh, He almost sounds like a monk, the way he lived so selflessly, concerned about the animals. I mean, This guy never owned any new set of clothes or anything. Oh, he was so rare. Steve, I have never in my life met a person who I think would be capable of living this way. It's no wonder to me that settlers wrote about him in their private journals and records. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky people preserved his memory, and I'm glad we're passing it on. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. So, at the start, you heard a little clip of Paradise, a song by Damn the Witch Siren. This duo out of Columbus, made up of Bobby Kitten and Z Wolf, is a sort of electronic and punk rock mix. They call it Witch Rock which sounds about right because Bobby's voice is definitely ethereal. 
They've been performing for, gosh, approaching a decade now. And Bobby has some new stuff on the horizon. She's been pursuing an acting career and in November announced she recently wrapped up a Hollywood movie that's coming out this spring. So we'll have to wait a bit longer to learn more about that. But in the meantime, you can keep up with them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and their website, www.damnthewitchsiren.com. So let's have another listen to Paradise by Damn the Witch Siren. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.